Hello, and welcome to the Librarians in the New York Public Library podcast about books, culture, and what to read next. I'm Crystal. And I'm Frank. <laughs> How's it going? How's it going? It's going. I don't yeah. know where it's going, but it's going. <laughs> it's going. It's going. Goodbye. <laughs> it's going, going, gone. Uh, I don't know. It's cold today, I guess. That's one thing. Did, did this snow? Um, I was gone for a bit at the ALA LibLearn X conference, I think it was this past weekend. Um, and I did hear that maybe it like might have snowed a little bit. Oh no, that was in Texas. There was like a little bit of ice. I don't know. I think I feel like we had a little dusting last night. But what was um what did you say? ALA LibLearn? Oh, LibLearn X. So uh, ALA, which is the American Library Association, they have two conferences every year. They have uh, LibLearn X in January. It used to be called Midwinter, and they changed the name, and I think they changed the structure of it. And then they have Annual, which is in June. Um, so yeah, uh, I went there. Uh, I got to listen to some cool programs. Um, I went to the New Orleans Public Library's Best Buy Teen Tech Center. <laughs> and I got to see um, that, and that was super amazing, and got to chat with the coordinators there. And they have this really large space where it has like the coolest tech things. We're, we're basically creating something similar here, um, but they have like a, a whisper room where the kids can do recordings, a gaming area, a button making station, a theremin. <laughs> All kinds of just like neat tech that's really laid out for the, the kids to access. And, and um, we're doing a lot of that stuff for teen centers for the New York Public Library. Um, and so it was nice to see that. And the food, because it was in New Orleans, the food was really amazing. Mm -hmm. I want to go back. I know. I, know. I went to ALA in New Orleans years ago and it was fabulous. I haven't been to ALA in a while. I'm paying my dues though. <laughs> I mean, oh, like the money dues, or you just meant like your dues as a oh, librarian. My, to keep myself in good standing with American mm -hmm. Association. Well, the, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the next one's going to be in Chicago in June. I think there's going to be a lot of um, okay. library folks from our library going. So you should go. Maybe I will. <laughs> um, the, actually, the new, the next president of the new, of ALA. St oh, started almost Jabinski, right yes started her career at jefferson market oh i didn't know that i know so i only know she's uh, em emily jerbinski because when i i went to pratt's for a couple of or a year and a half and i did not take a class with emily but um there was some workshop about the long island university lockouts that was really interesting like the whole like protest situation there and blah blah, blah. but yeah it's it's pretty cool i voted for emily so yeah i know we it was 20 years ago we're pretty much actually she started a couple of days before 9 11. Oh, that's wild. So there is, you know, a big disruption, obviously. Um, and then, but we we had a lot of fun together. Really? Not a notwithstanding. Um, yeah. It's amazing. The kids are growing up. Well, I think Emily, it, they're at, at CUNY, right? So they're still, like, in the area. Anyways, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. 
Yes, it is. I just find that, yeah, it was just interesting news and lovely news. And I hope she's happy with it. Um, sure, right? Um, yeah, I mean, being the head of this big organization can't be breezy easy, right? That's true. That's true. I think it is It is a lot of work, it seems like. Um, but there's also like a, a board and I think the immediate past presidents and everybody's kind of there to help like the transition and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens in the next year. Um, in ALA. We shall see. ALA. Maybe I will go to Chicago to the... Mm -hmm. I'm sure she'll speak. Anywho, um, what? No, no, yeah, I definitely think Luke? she'll be speaking. Yeah. So, where are we? What are we doing? <laughs> what are we talking well, about? Where are we going? I guess that was my culture moments, <laughs> a library conference. What's your culture moment for this That's week? True. Uh, my culture moment. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> What is my culture moment? Well, what have you been doing? Reading, watching? Well, reading will discuss all. Oh, I forgot that, yeah. Reading, well, it usually has to fly off the top of my head for me to have, for it to be a culture moment. I'm just thinking, and I also have no memory whether I've just talked about it or not. So, um, but you can always guide me on that. I keep, the first thing I keep thinking of is I'm, I'm furiously organizing, um, or the return, which of our classes for adults, like our university classes mm -hmm. um, that I've told, I'm sure I've mentioned before where I work with um, professors in local universities like NYU and the New School mm -hmm. to teach classes here for our public, the public intent for free. I know I've discussed it. So mm -hmm. we just, we had, a, we're having a Latin class right now, an introduction oh. to Latin. The language? The language and mm. learning Latin and also learning about how it obviously impacts language period. Mm -hmm. And I just talked to a professor in bio design. <gasps> Ooh, what's yeah. that about? That sounds cool. Darn divine I was like, is this about? <laughs> like biotechnology. No. Okay. Actually, well, interesting then for that is that I just happened to, literally the day, the morning of the interview with, or with the professor mm -hmm. i read an article that in the brooklyn navy yards they're going to build the first biotech lab uh -huh. i think anywhere um, really and i was like you know I, it is confusing we were working on this before the pandemic but now we've revived this idea of this class and the biggest the the i, I have a hard time understanding it myself that's partly why i'm interested in it but um, the example I, I read that is the only one that, uh, um, that makes sense to me is that like you can biodesign or biotech is sort of partly the endeavor to like, for example, create vegan leather out of mushrooms. Oh, like, okay. It's like engineering biology mm. uh, to create stuff <laughs> mm, okay you know like um it wasn't cool. oh, it was algae it was like um bio designing algae to create mm -hmm. vegan leather i or like to that create, to create a material right so i feel like it's very of the moment and i'd love to have this professor teach here mm -hmm. as well that. 
I'm very proud of these classes. I really like them on multiple levels. I like them that the public gets to encounter an expert and interesting, you know, conversant in the subject person on a subject and gets to sort of be with their neighbors, community, mm -hmm. and it's something that's ongoing. So it's multiple sessions. So it's sort of like a goal for the week. It's something um, interesting to do that is not just a one-off. So you get a deeper understanding of the subject, mm -hmm. like the Latin classes, 10 sessions. I mean, language classes could be mm -hmm. longer, but um, it's just one of the um, focal points of the work I feel like I do at Jefferson Market. I just want to have that that um, class, these classes. So, and the other thing I'm working on, which since we've been up in six months now, so it, things take time. It's amazing is our art gallery, but I'll work on that. But that's what's going on. That's what was on the top of my head. I was gonna say my um, friends has taken Jefferson Market. I think maybe really maybe pre COVID or pre pandemic, and really enjoys them. And she also takes like um, courses from the Metropolitan Museum of Art or it, like other museums. So I, I like that. Like it's at the same level for her. Like Jefferson Market right there with those wow. museums. And so I I think it's a it is a really great thing. And she has spoken very positively of the experience. And, and you're exactly right about like having this kind of community space where you have this kind of like regular consistent interaction where people are learning and exploring their interests but without the pressure of like a paying for it and grades and all of those other things so it's just such a it feels like a more supportive like learning environment yeah so, and i tell yeah. the professors that give homework you know do mm -hmm. make it real make it a little tough make it challenging mm -hmm. um what class did she take do you know i'm curious uh, i don't you remember in art Probably art related, yeah. I want to say, but it's it's been so long I don't remember. Um, art or history related, I feel like maybe one of those two. See, you know, whenever I sort of like, you know, I sometimes give too much credence to my own anecdotal evidence, like mm -hmm. about how successful or what we're doing here. And, you know, when you walk around the library and you see certain things, but you're not walking around the library every five, every second, or you're not mm -hmm. in every room of the library so you to see what's going on. So when I hear like, oh, someone you know took a class here, it's like, you know, how are, it just, you know, gives me more data, like we're, you know, doing good things. This is sort of like, sometimes, one can sometimes lose sight of what we're doing because you feel like you understand it, but then you hear these anecdotes about people who in the library and you're like, I didn't even know you saw that or did that or experienced that and it's sort of cool. Look, the, I mean, the biggest compliments, um, is how angry she got when Jefferson Martin was closed. <laughs> oh. oh, God. I know. <laughs> uh, so sweet. And how how happy she was that, like, it because I, I keep her updated on things. And I think, like, really years ago, really early on, too, I think maybe she, like, donated a book once, and then y'all featured it on the Instagram, and she was, like, so excited. <laughs> really? I know. Anyways, all that has to say is that I think um, people have very like special relationships with like their libraries and their like neighborhood institutions. And I think that's all really wonderful. Well, that is wonderful. So what are you reading, my dear? So I actually talked about this book last time, but briefly. So maybe I wanted to like talk about it a little bit more in depth or at least one of one or two of the stories. So I mentioned in our last podcast, The Haunting of 
uh, Haji Hotak and other stories by Jamil John Kochai. And um, I had mentioned that it was like a short story collection. It's, uh, the author wrote 99 Nights in Logar. And I want to particularly talk about my favorite story in it, which I think I did a little bit in the last one. But the story is called um, Return to Cinder. This is the second story in the collection. It features uh, a couple, a, a Yusuf and Amina, who are two people who like were able to left uh, leave Kabul um, and go to America, right? And they were able to sort of escape like a lot of the things that happened there. And over the course of their time there, I think they start to feel a lot of like guilt. Um, about like being sort of survivors and feeling this kind of pull to return to Kabul, especially with like the Taliban kind of pulling back, right? And when they do return to Kabul, they also bring their son Ishmael with them. And so they go back to their home country. Um, they go back and the story starts with uh, sort of Yusuf, waking up having coffee and then getting a package uh, in the hallway of their apartment, right? And then it kind of like flips to Amina, Amina who is sleeping then wakes up and then she goes out and sees the package as well, right? Not realizing that this is actually the second package, the first package uh, Yusuf has, right? And when she opens the package, she, and this is gonna be kind of a spoilery, spoilery for um, this short story, um, when she opens the package, uh, it is a, a finger, and it's a, a finger of her son Ishmael, right? And the finger is still alive. It's like wiggling, right? And this is—I know this is like the kind of weird, I guess, oh. I call it magical realism, right? Um, right. And so she gets this package. She's seeing this and kind of like reckoning with that. Meanwhile, Yusuf has another package, right? And that package also, I think, has a, a finger as well, right? And he is running because uh, somebody had just left the package and he's trying to like find that person, trying to find what happened to um, his son, Ishmael, uh, Ismael. And Amina, meanwhile, continues to get like more packages. So, so she'll hear like a, a package get dropped off she opens it and it's another body part right and it's a series of packages and she's just sitting there waiting for them to arrive and the body parts are all kind of like moving and wriggling and then what she ends up doing is she takes them to Ismail's room puts them out on the bed and starts stitching them together and as she's stitching them together she realizes that one finger is still missing and that's the finger that Yusuf has right and so she decides to cut off her own finger to kind of complete Ismail's body um and just as she does that Yusuf comes back uh, and they are there, she takes the finger, even though she's kind of bleeding, and sews it back, and then kind of don't know like what happens at the end. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a mysterious ending, but I did want to read like a passage from it. Mm. And it's Ismail, because I was I think I was pronouncing it Ishmael. So um the package I went through reads <laughs> oh sorry, pa passage. Uh, I'm having a morning today. 
Um, so at this point, she has collected these pieces of Ismail's um, like living body together. And um, it, it goes on to say, in the beginning, Shed seemed almost dazed by her labors, hypnotized, but in reality, she floated throughout the doorways of her apartment, her white, her white door floating, fluttering about her legs in a state of utter focus. She found that every 23rd thump of her heart aligned perfectly with the sound of the knocks from the door. Soon she came to feel that her hands and her feet, her lungs and her blood, were not at all working in unison, directed by the will of her singular mind, but that each limb was willingly acting on its own. And she felt so very gracious that the threads of her hair did not leap off her head, and that her fingernails did not fall away from their beds, and that her heart, pumping and pumping, day and night, was not forlorn, was not driven to suicide by the traumas and monotonies of her short, short life. She recalled a story, unsure if it was from the Quran or Sahih al-Bukhari, of how on Judgment Day, your hand and your mouth and your eyes were supposed to testify against you, proclaiming your sins before the judgment of Allah. What a story she used to think, but now she felt she was becoming untethered from her body, and for moments at a time, she played with the idea that she was not awake at all, that this too was a long dream, but then she would open another package and watch the curling, wriggling, pulsing of the flesh and her faith in the reality of the moment would be reaffirmed how odd she thought that she ever doubted um so I, that just kind of gives you an example of like the the writing style um and then i'm going to also read the last sentence of the the short story so if people don't want to hear it i'm just just fast forward um so once like they've put together uh ismail's body the last line of it says together piercing and threading, tearing and binding, flesh to flesh. Amina and Yusuf both realized that they would never leave Kabul again, that they were home. I just thought it was like so powerful. I don't know. And I think there's so much to say about like this idea that they they had the skills for leaving their home. They came back, right, um, to try to to help like their, the, the people in their community yeah. or their countrymen. Um, it, but in doing so, they made like almost the ultimate sacrifice, which was their child, like the, the consequences of war, right? Because they were only going to stay for a year and this happens at the six month point and then they're like forever altered by that. So I just thought that was really um, a really powerful story. That was the second one. And the first one, um, I won't talk too deeply about it, but it's called Playing Metal Gear Solid five the phantom pain which is apparently a real game i did not realize this but i think it's a shooter game and it takes place in 1980s afghanistan right um but the the protagonist of that story is buys a game starts playing it but the the character that he plays in the game starts like kind of wandering off from the main narrative and starts to go off into the village and then that starts to get intercut with the um the narratives like father's story of war. There's this sort of blurring of the reality of the game and the real history of like 1980s Afghanistan um, and the sort of the legacy of like that violence. Um, I thought it was really interesting and really well done, but I, I do highly recommend this short story collection, which is surprising because again, I don't like short stories. <laughs> Why? I've talked, I think I talked about this before. I, I I used to feel, and I don't feel this way anymore because of this book and then what we fed to the manticore and also the 
lesser known monsters of the 20th, 21st century. Um, those three short storybooks I read last year really changed my mind about it. I always used to feel like one, short stories didn't give me enough time to feel like emotionally invested, right? And I guess I was just not reading the right kinds of short stories. And then I also felt like a lot of collections would be so uneven where I would really like one, but not like the rest. And I felt like those three collections, they were consistently good throughout, right? And each of them, there was this like really clear and strong like emotional impact. And I felt very invested in it and didn't want to leave. Um, and they were able to do it in a very short number of pages. And so I was super impressed. And again, they all like won me over, of course, me being like not a great short story reader. Um, except for O. Henry, I do like O. Henry. <laughs> Oh, a little, a little, what is it? Ir ironic twist. <laughs> O-H. That was the only short stories I enjoyed growing up. Um, but again, I was not introduced to the right ones. And I think that's a big part of thinking about reading in libraries is just sort of meeting the right book, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, when we walk... I don't know. I just, I think when I mentioned walking around the library before, like when I see people just browsing, it's like such a pleasurable thing to observe. I feel like that's the only way to go. Just you to love stand there and sort of just take a moment and mm -hmm. look and pull off the shelf and open. And I don't know. That's serendipity that serendipity and just experience mm -hmm. that is so wonderful. But at the ALA conference I went to, they have this kind of exhibit hall slash marketplace where a lot of publishers and also like, you know, database companies and things like that are there. Um, but yeah, there was, I haven't, well, yeah, actually for, since I've left the branches, I haven't really gone into a library space to just browse books. It's usually just picking up holds, like very kind of um, matter of fact uh, a relationship. But in the exhibit hall or the marketplace, um, I had the opportunity just like to look at all the new books and to read all the summaries of them. And it was like a really joyful experience. You're right. You know, I, I kind of really miss that to be like, oh, wow, what is this about? And seeing, um, and seeing that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, creating that environment so people feel cozy and comfortable doing it, too. Mm -hmm. Like, value-added experience. Um. <laughs> which, that reminds me, for your salon that you've built, which I, again, see in your background, are you going to have any, like, books, like, library books on display there, or? That's a good idea, actually, if you could see behind me that there are shelves, and there were mm -hmm. shelves in the room, but I didn't want and I have artwork in the shelves, but I didn't want to put books. Originally, I was going to put books, like interesting books that I have, but I didn't want to use books as wallpaper. I wanted it to be, I, I want the books in this building to be retrievable and usable and findable. So I just decided to make, and there's a hallway outside this room that has books on, on the shelf that's um, mm -hmm. used for different classes. But I wanted this to be a more, uh, art room, even though I have some art books in here that I'm use for inspiration, but I don't know. We'll see yeah. how it falls. We'll see I was, how it yeah, I was going to suggest that like some like artists, monographs or other like really pictorial based stuff 
those giant coffee books kind of off. That's what I have the computer propped up on, actually. Which well, I do that too. I but I every single one of the books I'm looking for now I've used in this room as for inspiration of what to put up and um so it's supposed to be inspiring. Um hopefully. So it could be like, the weather. It's, it's like kind of dreary out. I just want to listen, shockingly. <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of, I said, I just want to listen instead of talking, which is a shock, considering what people say about me and my talk, talk, talk. But uh, I guess what I, um, I read, see, I don't even know how I came to it. Talk about serendipity. I mean, I'm sort of obsessed with, with German... I've mentioned before, my father was German, whatever. But, um, and Thomas Mann, Death in Venice, Magic Mountain, I love something, I don't know. So I just, I've always heard of Arthur Schnitzler. <gasps> what? Oh, I, no, I think I've read, sorry, I guess because I think I've read that author. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> I'm excited for a minute. He's like uh, early 20th century and he was like a, um, same generation as Freud, mm-hmm. and a lot of people compare. Schnitzler wrote fiction and plays, but his psychology is con- con- comparable or compared to Freud's. And um, he wrote novellas and stories uh, and plays, like I said, uh, one of which is called Dream Story. Mm-hmm. And that story or that novella was was made into the movie Eyes Wide Shut with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. So I've always wanted to read it and I never have. And there's, I want to read others because I know he deals with like dreams and very sexual, um, like sort of, you know, primal impulses of, of humans. And so I, I did, I read um, Dream Story and it was interesting. I mean, I'd seen the movie years ago, but I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't remember all the plot points and reading a story is obviously far different than watching a movie. Uh, so it's really, um, so basically it's this couple, young couple with a child that are, you know, have gone to a party and they're had a great time at this party. It's sort of like, you know, made them frisky again. I mean, they're young, but they have like a six year old or something and had a great time at the party. And then the next night they're talking about it. And as things do, like they, you know, when you it almost seems like when you have a great time or a great moment in life or everything seems to be going well humans tend to want to sort of probe deeper to see if it's really true and and invariably sort of reveal something not so nice like sometimes you we push it too far in terms of oh my god this was a great time we're getting along we have a marriage it's working and then you're talking and then you're like well you know well you had a great time but you i did see you looking at that other person you know, kind of thing. So they, the couple starts, Fridolin and Albertine start talking and um, Albertine just comes out with this, um, because they are sort of pushing each other a little bit. It's turned from this great moment to sort of like testing each other and divining if the other is telling the truth in this conversation. She comes up, she comes out with the story of a vacation that she and her husband and the kid took like a year before where she sort of had this infatuation with a, a soldier and she, nothing happened physically, but she tells her husband that um, she was 
incredibly attracted and could even and even in, a, in the moment contemplated like giving up her whole life for just one moment with this soldier and he's the husband's like huh <laughs> he and this is all right so then he he's like a little rocked by this and the rest of the novella is basically him um going through this dream it's, it seems dreamlike but it could be very real journey through the night streets of, of the town they live in where he encounters all these really sexual possibilities um that actually culminates in a sort of secret um ritualistic mansion orgy type situation um but what was interesting to me as i thought about it is like why why was her his wife's um revelation or story so shocking to him and why did it sort of rock him to to do what he did in the rest of the novel and or try to do and that to me was the interesting thing because it brings up issues of how men look at women how we define marriage what is honesty in a relationship you know, like we're always like, tell me, tell me, you know, tell me about your history. Tell me about your past. I can take it. It's, I know we're married and happy. And then, you know, one of the couples that will say, well, I did have this romance, blah, blah, blah. And the other one's just like, wait a minute. And then they get jealous. And it, that's sort of what I'm talking about and what this book is that we sort of think we want honesty or we might just want reassurance. I mean, and it's certainly um, the point with the husband, Fridolin, in this is that it, it seems to make a statement about men because after he his wife tells him this and he go, he's a doctor and he gets ca called away on a on a visit which starts this night journey through the streets of the town that where he encounters these moments that seem dreamlike but could be real um he is walking by a, like a sort of group of men who are walking towards him and one of them sort of pushes him like with his shoulder like it seems like it's intentional so and he gets angry at that and but decides not to fight and then you know as a matter of principle and then later as he's walking he realizes was i being a coward so what it seems to do is he's suggesting these masculine things that sort of uh we could say about men like all right his wife has a fantasy at another man another man sort of physically challenged him and he didn't take up on it to me it seems like the book is setting up these masculine tests right and so what does that say so we we always say like, you could say like, well, he doesn't understand female sexuality and that he doesn't, his wife can't have fantasies because that's crazy and why, you know, he doesn't get it. Or he doesn't think that they have fantasies, like she, she's happy just with him. And in a way it seems different in that it's, it's a, it could be this thing in the manosphere, as they say, like that men just, it's not that they don't care or know about women's fantasies, it's that they just, operate from a position of status mm -hmm. need to feel they're the top dog and that they that needs to be reaffirmed and it somehow seems to make sense in that the common joke about marriage from the wife's perspective through like cultural tropes is that mm -hmm. the wife looks at the husband as, as almost childlike he's a little boy with his toys and his need to feel like he's the man in it. And she's just like, all right, honey, you're the man. And like sort of playing into that, but knowing you're just a person. Mm -hmm. 
it's an interesting thing because that does set him off. And later, the wife tells her husband and of her dream. She has a literal dream that she's actually engaging in that affair with that soldier, and she's looking at her husband, um, sort of like with the expectation of approval, like, and also to for him to go ahead and and play around. And in the, her dream, he ends up not doing that, denying it, and gets tortured for it and ultimately killed. And, and of course, he's again shocked hearing this story, but it's almost saying she's like, well, I'm willing to sort of explore. Um, and he's just like not. So it was, it was very interesting. It, it sort of reminded me, even though the content is very different, of John Cheever's story, The Swimmer. Another thing I'm interested in, it's it, the content is the same, nor nor what it says is the same, but it, it is set in that interesting milieu of, of bourgeois suburban life, which actually I'm fascinated with because I grew up in that and mm -hmm. suburbia of Long Island, but I thinking about it, it's the most it's the most aspirational, like sort of traditionally American revered institution of like, you get this family together, a nice house, the nice accoutrements that show status. And it's very aspirational, but it seems like the, the fun part of it or the tragic part of it is through literature and movies is that it's always discussed as like, it never is what it's cracked up to be. Like we are mm -hmm. just comes through. We can't sustain this, this fantasy or this aspiration of, of the bourgeois lifestyle. And I love, love in quotes, um, reading stories or books about that struggle and cracking a part of that dream. Mm -hmm. Because certainly in Dream, Not a Story by Schnitzler, it, the, you know, the doctor and his wife and the kid, they have it all. And then she introduces a sexual fantasy that just knocks him for a loop. But it's like very real, but yet he can't, it's hard for him to deal with because um, it's so out of the prescription of what, the bourgeois dream is. And I, I do find that fascinating because, you know, I lived it in some ways as the child of, you know, the suburban life. Mm -hmm. But it is, I mean, you know, the Freudian thing comes in like dreams and what they mean. And um, it is interesting to analyze on different levels. I mean, I always, again, try to figure out like where the sort of, you know, original urge comes from that's why I was interested in why why technically why the, should the husband be so upset by hearing his wife's fantasy he could be like oh wow mm -hmm. and interesting and but yet it's a, a cosmic blow to him to sort of figure out why that is and then as I said he goes on this sort of dream journey which nothing ever comes to fruition for him in terms of like engaging in another relationship mm -hmm. it's sort of a comedy in that way um but it's interesting. And then, you know, essentially the story ends up with uh, the wife who seems to be much more savvy and smart throughout the whole story of her just saying, you know, hey, we survived the dream. We survived the night. Um, let's not be ungrateful to what we do have. And he's like, I love you. And she's like, I love you. And he says, I love you forever. And she's like, ah, oh. she's like, let's not talk about forever. Let's just, let's just get through today. And it, that's a sort of smart way to look at it, if, if not romantic and not um, part of the um, the aspirational dream of marriage. That of course will be forever, you know. Um, 
it's interesting. I mean, I remember as a kid in the seventies, like when the seventies, when the sixties revolutions filtered down to suburbia, like literally it was every, every family on the block was getting divorced. Like one to the other. And my parents didn't, but how'd you know this? (laughs) My parents would talk about it. Oh, okay. They are just kind of like, huh? Oh, they just like knew because it was like neighborhood. They all it's like neighborhood gossip. And when I look back at it through the filter of my own of my own age and experience and these stories, it's like it had to have been primarily because the dream of suburbia did not match. Mm-hmm. Like human beings could not achieve that dream because they're messy and mm-hmm. desirous, and you know, and and the. The, the the tighter you put your um, dream prescription, meaning if your fantasy of life or your narrative that you want to fulfill is so prescribed and tight, mm-hmm. you're invariably going to butt up against it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, and suburbia, and you see it playing out in politics today, like, you know, the sort of family values thing. It's this, and the, this aspiration towards achieving this almost mythical goal of a family united where everything is functional and non not disturbed and that is a fascinating dream to have but clearly human humans just bring so much mess to it you know what i mean so much humanness to it that it can't possibly um it can't possibly sustain unless the couple comes up with their own rules and boundaries that somehow relate more directly to them and the realities of their humanness, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That makes sense to you. For this author, have you Mm -hmm. read any of the other works that they've written? He, I mean, he did go to medical school. He's like from the early, he wrote in the 20s. Well, he wrote a book called, uh, a novella called Night Games. Mm Sounds interesting. Um, I, I read, I think I, I read the one, I think it's Late Fame, which. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Have you read that one? Did no. we talk about this? You're incredible. No, but I know the title. That's not in this collection. What What was that oh, about? I, so from what I can remember, it was like a poet or a writer or something who had written something when he was young, but I think he was like older now and was just kind of had like a regular job, had not really gotten fame. And I think his writing got like rediscovered um, by this like young, cool, hip group of like artists, poet types, right? And they like, like kind of he got famous just within this this cool trendy group and then he kind of falls in with their social circle as this like older guy but i don't know there's something something happened in it i remember i don't remember what exactly where i think he was getting like a lot of accolades and that was really great but then something happened where i think by the end he recognized that he was happy to go back to his like grumpy old social circle of dudes or whatever <laughs> and the, the previous life of somewhat obscurity but like really enjoying that um so i just remember like the things that you're saying resonates because i i recall when i read the book that that author has such a great interesting insight on like human emotions and interactions within society and it felt like very relatable you know anyways 
but I recommend it. I thought it was a pretty enjoyable, interesting read. I think it was also like this, like a very short kind of novella. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and like the story I said before, The Swimmer by John Cheever. Did you, you read that, right? I don't think I've ever read John Cheever, okay. yeah. Yeah, he's like the king of uh, suburban angst and like that Mad Men era of the 50s, 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, The Swimmer is like, it, it is dreamlike, surreal. It's essentially this like cocky, you know, rich, well-to-do, Connecticut dwelling guy in the 60s, whatever, um, mm-hmm. drinking martinis, you know, in the pool kind of thing and on the day off, like, you know, the Mad Men trope mm-hmm. uh, from the TV show. So, and he's in his, he decides, to, he has to go back home and he decides to uh, swim through all his neighbor's pools all the way to his own house. Just as like a drunken afternoon doo-doo. As he does that, it slowly starts turning very quickly from summer to fall and he encounters people in his life in the backyards of these houses that seem to be different than he remembered and in terms of their relationships with him. And by the end of it, he's just at an abandoned house with nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. You know, it's like this suburban dream collapse. Like, in other words, he had really been a bad father, divorced, kids don't care, lost his job, doesn't have anything. We're at the beginning. He's just like, got it all, kid. The classic, you know, master of the universe. And then just that, that, in essence, like dream story and, and that story, it's like this sort of, and the older I get, the more I realize how powerful it is. Like you think at different points, you're like how you know yourself. You just know yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like in, this, in the stories I just discussed, like you encounter moments and it, it, revelations that you realize I don't know myself at all. Mm-hmm. Or so much about myself, like that, um, that something can occur that will be an emotional cataclysm for you. And it's like, why are you so destabilized? When if it's technically you knew yourself, you could, could take the hit, you could be able to deal with it. But yet, you know, like in the summary, he's like, cannot acknowledge the failure of most of his relationships or life. Mm -hmm. Can't, it's just not in the narrative. It's not in the story. He's he's a success. He's a guy, maybe again, status. Mm -hmm. Like in dream story, it's like, you know, he thinks, the guy thinks his marriage is organized, pulled together. And then the wife's, you know, very, you know, openly just says, like, yeah, I had a fantasy. And he's like, what? Wait, what? What is reality? And then you go off. And when you think about yourself, it's like, you know, those moments where you're just like, what do I know? Like, how do I, how do I even know this? Again, the existential. It always comes after that for me. <laughs> the existential, please, to the universe. <laughs> that is to me. Um, it is a, it is an interesting thing if we really can contemplate those moments. And I don't think there are all that many where you're suddenly pitched into an emotion that's unexpected mm-hmm. is what I mean. And usually it's when you're alone and usually you don't remember what you were even thinking about, but suddenly the whole emotional tenor of your, of your being changes and is intense and then maybe goes away, but you're just like, what was that? Like, mm-hmm. what happened there and usually it's a, a feeling of dread or despair but it also could be joy and exhilaration and you don't even know where it comes from and i think it comes from your subconscious or your brain somehow is contemplating your story that you tell yourself and is an encountering a schism that causes it to 
momentarily quest itself or break down. That could be result in multiple emotions. And oftentimes we just take a breath and put it away. It's like, okay, and move on. And maybe not even remember it. But when I when I read this story, I thought of that where, you know, occasionally in one's life you have these moments where you're just like, wait, what? What is actually occurring here in my life? And what is the narrative of my life? And does it even make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, is it even so-called true, you know? I, I love the way that you describe that because um, I think that is, like, very real. And um, I think about that a lot, like, when I read books and how, like, it reveals so much about the world. And you have those moments where you, like, I mean, I feel like I, I see the world more clearly or myself more clearly. Um, but I also really like the fact that you're, like, we sometimes don't even remember it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I never think back on it. I'm like, I definitely had so many of those moments when I'm reading books throughout, but I should write that down, which um, now I'm, I'm thinking about it. Um, but that is a, a lot of the joys of these books for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the, that, it is a funny thing to point out that something so important as an emotional revelation can sometimes be forgettable. And I think it, it's forgettable in that it's not because it's unimportant, it's because it's maybe too much, you just want to put it back. You want to put it back in the darkness and just like, don't come out really right now, <laughs> or don't come out ever. <laughs> and I do think there is something about like, just living in that moment and experiencing it and just being okay with also just letting it go too. Well, in, in a sense that I think I, there is this kind of pressure um, because we have a lot of technology and things to document everything. I think about that when I like go to concerts or other um, parades and things like that, like having to, or feeling this need to spend your energies documenting it yeah. for yourself, for the future, for your friends, for your family, that you really miss the actual experience of like living in the moments. And so maybe it's okay that we, we're not like writing this down or um, tracking it and I mean, just living it. That's a really good, in a way, a good example, I think, because really, for the most part, does anyone really care about seeing the pictures of the parade you went to? Do they really? I mean, you I, mean that, I feel attacked right now. Wait, wait. Now I feel totally attacked because I did some pictures of some parade in New Orleans. To some but I mean, like, you know, your <laughs> but yeah, friend, you're right. a friend that you like and who likes you could very even, honestly be like, oh, show me. And then you show them and then it's done. And really, what did it serve? Yeah. And I'm not saying the person was lying to, that with their interest of show me the picture mm -hmm. but really they probably if they really were honest it was just being nice to you but so it's it's that that's exactly what i'm talking about like that's sort of what your narrative is yeah. what you feel like you have to do but really just if you didn't take a picture of any of these things people i mean i it happened to me the other day so i was talking about an event we did at the library and, and somebody was like oh do you have a picture Mm -hmm. And I, you know, typical Frank, I was like, no, I was living the moment. I didn't take a picture. <laughs> and and I, I remembered it because, like, I'm sure he forgot two seconds later. Like, who cares? Yeah. But he asks, like, to see a picture because, you know, in a way, we're complicit in that documentation. Mm -hmm. story. But really, does it, did it matter? No. Yeah. And it's that sort of revelation that I'm, I'm talking about, like, I mean, it's not a cataclysmic one, but it could technically be one. I mean, someone could, when they realize that they have 6,000 pictures on their phone and have a revelation one day, say, who cares? Like, what does this matter? That could be an existential yeah. crisis, like a, a crisis of like, 
what story am I telling myself? Like, mm -hmm. why am I doing this? I'm taking pictures, not for my friends, but I'm, am I really doing it to make myself feel like I'm living a life? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so who knows what the reason is, but that's exactly the sort of experience. Well, you just mm -hmm. picked up on it and that's why you told me the story. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Live life, be free. That's all I can say. <laughs> oh, dream story, my darling. And now I want to read this book, Night, this other novella, Night Games. That's and Late Fame. Don't forget Late Fame. Late Fame. Read that one. There's one called Death of the Bachelor. And another one called it, the Dead Are Silent. So this is a, you have a, a short story collection. Is it just called, what is it called? A novella. It's called Night Games and other novellas. Oh, so it's it's collected. Okay. Yeah. And then there's a couple of collections. I have one coming called Desire and Delusion, which is another collection of novellas and story. Desire and Delusion. Yeah. What a duo, right? I'm like, am I right? I'm Maybe it should be like the name of my memoir. What? Oh, if I had a memoir, I would just call it Desire and Delusion. Well, I was going to say, if I ever have kids and I have twins, I'll name them Desire and Delusion. <laughs> Actually, I would Delusion, just... get in here. Delu I... Don't you dare hit Desire. <laughs> Del delusion. Delusion Marie, get over here. <laughs> I was going to amend that and just say that my memoir would just be called Delusion. Just take out Desire and just, just make, okay. make it Delusion. <laughs> what if I gave Delusion the middle name of Marie? <laughs> when you're angry, you give, give the full name. Delusion Marie Calarius, get over here right now. That's such a good name. I love it. Delusion Marie. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Delusion. And I'm Desire. I'm Desire. Well, come on into the party, you two. It's going to be an interesting experience. <laughs> oh, anyway. So now we are moving onward to read together. Why don't you tell the world, which we've mentioned before. We're going to read. Oh. oh, she has to look it up. <laughs> oh, Crystal. I know because it's it's the title. It's like multiple books are named by that title. Um, but we're reading Elsewhere, a novel by Alexis Shakin, which was written in 2022. And it's not the other Elsewhere book or multiple Elsewhere books because there's a lot of a lot of them. Right, like well, Milan Kundera wrote "Life is Elsewhere." Mm -hmm. um, I like that word, though. It's interesting. I like contemplating what "elsewhere" means, especially the concept of life yeah. is elsewhere. Meaning, mm -hmm. life can't possibly be where one is; it has to be somewhere else. Oh, you um, went you went the philosophical bent. I was just thinking. Sometimes I have work meetings, and I would like to be elsewhere, and that's what that reminds me of. <laughs> Oh, like, oh, elsewhere, oh, there's so much happening. Um, but but the your work meetings are a metaphor for your life. <laughs> but um, to to sell this book a little bit, it's been compared by the publisher. To be fair, um, been compared to Shirley Jackson's The Lottery and the works of Margaret Atwood. If that helps well, to contextualize like... people, yeah, contextualize the book. Well, see, that's actually, it's funny you should say that because when you were saying about short stories and you didn't like them because you maybe didn't read the right stories, I'm like, she clearly didn't read Shirley Jackson's short stories. I did. I did read The Lottery. No, I, 
I did. I mean, like, I it was too disturbing for me. I, I'm this disturbing books. Um, I, think uh, I also read like the Yellow Wallpaper, The Turn to Screw. A lot of those short stories I have read in the past, but they were not like my favorites in this in the sense that I would keep returning to them or have the effect on me as clearly like Sheber has had on you, etc. Um, they just felt like I I recognized that they were good that they were for school, whereas I actually actively enjoy the um the haunting of the haji hotak and the other two books that i mentioned and would recommend to everyone got it got it i'm looking at the finish on this table it's beautiful and i did it myself <laughs> anyway. at what point are you going to just provide photographs of your salon so that christy well, can put it in the, the what did we just talk about taking pictures of things that you really don't care about um <laughs> Well, this is different. It's not like an experience. Well, I guess it is an experience to be in a salon. I mean, what's funny is that I've done so much physical work. Like I fit, refinished the table I'm sitting at. Mm -hmm. I was never handy, but it's like, well, <laughs> talk about Freud. I mean, it's almost like becoming your parents in a way because my father was very handy. And I think maybe my whole life I was like rejecting handiness because mm -hmm. you, know, you reject your parents or whatever. Or, whatever and now as i you know get older i'm just like embracing it it's almost like i was thinking the like someone even said to me the other day it's like i, mean, I painted something in the library and they were like you're really getting good at this and it's like after all these years of thinking i couldn't do anything physical like that i'm actually doing it i don't know that's a whole I mean, freudian thing or parental relationship I mean, no. give it another few years, maybe you'll be an interior designer like your mom that also exactly. does like handy handyman work on the sides. That could be a whole side business. I know. My mom was a designer and my dad was like a carpenter. And so so or like so it's like I've been I'm now doing what they always did and mm -hmm. I never did. I mean so strong. The genetics are strong, yes. It's just like it's true. Maybe once Oh, anyway, I'm not going to start that because that's a whole you, conversation about parents and all that stuff. But of course. Anyway. And I'll just end it by just saying that um, when you do have your side business and have <laughs> your side hustle, you can call it desire and delusion. And it's <laughs> <laughs> interior design. Desire having your room look like this, but you're deluded. <laughs> right, right. So, that's it. That's the bourgeois experience. You mm -hmm. desire something, but you're deluded. Yeah, I gotta read more Schnitzler. Author Schnitzler. Schnitzler, yes. Hitler condemned him, of course. Then great. I want to read more of him. Being decadent, an example of you know decadent. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so yeah, that was interesting. All right, so elsewhere by Alexis Shapkin. Next time, read it, everybody, with us as Crystal and I go down that road and see what's at the end of it. Yay. All right, honey. All right. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.